Hey, today we're beginning a brand new series of messages that we're going to be in for probably the next uh, about seven weeks called Prove It. And over the, this uh, course of these messages, we're going to be looking at uh, the letter of 1 John. And so if, if you uh, have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip over to 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 1. And the goal of this series is really just going to be to kind of go verse by verse through um, every now and then. Uh, I, I want to, or at least a couple of times a year, I want to try and preach a series through one of the books of the Bible. And so this time it's, it's 1 John. And so if you're wondering where we're going to be at for the next few weeks, you know, what passage of Scripture we're going to be talking about, well, now you know, First John. And so it's a, it's a short little letter toward the end of your New Testament, toward the end of the Bible. If you want to read ahead, you can. It won't take, take you very long. It's only five chapters long. And so uh, you, you can read that, you know, this afternoon if you'd like. You know, you hear me oftentimes in sermons mention culture, and, and one of the reasons is because I, it, culture just fascinates me. It's an interesting time that we live in. What, um, one of the biggest reasons that I, that I mention culture a lot is simply for the fact that we're affected by culture. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are affected by culture and what happens in our culture. And so I think as believers, we have to be aware of how culture influences us and and how culture affects us so that we can be able to speak effectively and with influence into culture so that we can, as believers, shine a light in culture. And that doesn't mean, you know, I talk about culture as like it's always bad. Culture isn't inherently bad. But we do have a role as believers, I believe, to shape our culture and to be a light in our culture. The reality, though, is that the more we hear something, the more that we see something, the more we accept that something as as okay, as, as, you know, just the normal now. Um, and you see the effects of that in many different issues, moral issues, social issues. You know, the more we hear it, the more we see it, the more we just accept it. It's like at first, the first time you heard it, it was kind of, oh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And it was kind of controversial and it kind of struck a chord with you. But you heard it over and over and over again. And after a while, it was just like, you know, you didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, you just kind of became desensitized to it. Think about it this way. One of the TV shows that I, I think just shaped, reshaped culture um, for, for good and for bad uh, and really just defined the 90s is, is one of my favorite TV shows, the show Friends. How many of you have watched Friends? So, all right, so a few of you. So, you, so some of you know what Chandler Bing does for a living. A few of you, if you didn't watch Friends, you don't get that reference at all. But, but if you've watched Friends, you know that that's a, that's a highlight of the show. One of my favorite shows I've probably seen probably every episode a couple of times. But when it first aired, when, when the show Friends first aired, and, and you know, it's not like it is today where you can just stream a whole season you know, in one weekend. You had, to, you, know, you had to wait a week for that next show to come out, right? Kids today, they'll never know how, how good they have it with that, right? But when... When it first aired, some of the things that they talked about were, were pretty controversial. But now if you go back and watch that show, you know, whether, whether you watch it at Nick at Night or on TBS reruns or whatever, you think, that show's pretty tame. But 28 years ago, think about that, 28 years ago, that makes me feel old. Friends came out 28 years ago. 28 years ago, that was some hot topic stuff. And the thing about that show is that it normalized some, some things that, just weren't good behaviors. You know, especially when it came to like dating and relationships and those kind of behaviors. It just normalized some things so much to the, to the point that some of you right now are probably trying to think of specific episodes where you go, huh, is there, was there something bad in that episode? Was there something wrong with it? Because we just became used to it. It just became the new normal. Which is really what poses the problem for culture. 
that culture continues to change. Culture continues to evolve. But God doesn't change. God's word is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago and, and will be for the rest of eternity. God doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. But culture changes over time. And so there's this tension as believers of how do we stand firm in what we believe and how do we stand firm and stay true to what Scripture says. And at the same time, how do we speak into culture, especially the culture that we live in? It reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2 when he says, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. As, as believers, I, I would hope that we would all agree on this, that we are all called to live countercultural lives. And, and let me just tell you, if you've never thought about that, let me tell you, the church has always been called to be counterculture. When the church first started, the, the thing that made the church so attractive and, and drew so many people to that first century church was it was so different than what they had ever experienced before. It was countercultural. As believers, our lives need to look different. The way that we act needs to be different. The words that we say should be different. Think about that for just a moment. Our, our vocabulary should be different than the rest of the world. And, I, and I'm not talking about using churchy words like propitiation that nobody knows what we're talking about. I'm, not talking, I'm talking about maybe the words that we choose not to say. Not to use profane words. And look, I get it. One slips every now and then. You know, you step on a, you step on a Lego. You stub your toe. If you've never done those two things, I mean, like, there's not a whole lot of pain worse, right? It's going to cause you to say some things that you probably shouldn't say sometimes. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You know, those times, though, that should be the exception. And I'm not trying to justify it, but, but that should be the exception, not the normal language that we use. What does Scripture say about, about our, our mouths, about our words? That out of the heart, our mouth speaks. The point is this, is that we ought to be different than culture in those arenas where we are being conf- and in those arenas where we're being conformed to culture, we have to be aware of them so that instead of conforming to culture, we can be conformed to Christ. And so when we look at the letter of 1 John, and we're calling this series Prove It, because really the way that we live our lives, and this is kind of the big point of this series, is the, the way that we live our lives proves whether or not we believe what we say we believe, whether or not we actually believe our faith, whether or not we're acting on our faith. It's a living proof. And so as we go through this letter, what we're going to see is that over and over and over again is that there is proof to the world about what we say we believe. And then when they look at the way we live our lives, they can see that we're telling the truth, that we actually believe what we say we believe, that our walk matches our talk. And one of the things that I find really interesting about culture is that that most people, or, or at least a lot of people, are very affirming of Jesus. And, and here's what I mean by that, is that lots of people will say that, yeah, we like Jesus. I mean, you rarely ever find somebody that says, you know, no, I, I hate Jesus. I'm, I don't like him at all. You rarely ever find that. What you find is you find people that say, hey, you know, I, I like Jesus. Or, or you know, we, we can learn a lot from Jesus. We should all be peaceful and loving and full of, uh, of, of grace. We should all be gracious like Jesus was. And all of those things are right. We should be. But the issue is holiness and righteousness. And when we look at how Jesus lived his life, I don't think people always have a good, clear picture of who Jesus really was. And that scares me a little bit because people will say things, I like Jesus, I just don't like Christians. I mean, I've heard people say that. Um, I think it was Gandhi that made the saying famous, I, I, like, I like this Jesus, I just don't like his followers. Right? 
And the reality is, is that the Jesus that we often hear people say that they like is often not the real Jesus because they've shaped Jesus to reflect our culture instead of the Jesus that we find in Scripture. So what we want to do in this series is to help give us a foundation so that we, when we are faced with choices, when we are faced with the moral dilemmas, social dilemmas, societal issues that we need to take a stand on, what, what we want to do is, is know why we believe what we believe and why we choose the things that we choose, why we act the way that we act. And, and not, just, you know, not just so that we follow a list of rules. Bobby, I love Bobby's communion meditation about how Jesus just heralded every, all of the laws and the commandments down to two, love God and love people. So we don't have to be concerned with a long list of rules like, like, the, like the Jewish uh, leaders were. You know, they had like 713 laws, maybe 613 laws. I can't, I can't remember, but it was a bunch, right? And you had to, you had to follow every one of them to the, to, to the letter. We don't have to be concerned with all of those things. we got two laws we need to follow, love God and love people. And so what we want to do through this series is, is have a good foundation for why we choose the actions that we choose, why we say the things that we do, and, and why we are who we are, why we believe what we believe. And so to get us started, we're going to focus on this extremely important question. In fact, I'll just say I think it's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. And whether you're a believer uh, or, or not a believer, you ultimately will have to answer and wrestle with this question. And the answer to this question will determine the trajectory of your life, the, the, the way that you choose to live your life. And the question is simply this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There was a, a movement a few years ago uh, in, back in the scholarly circles called the Historical Jesus Movement. And it was a group of people that got together and they said, hey, we want to examine the Bible and we want to find out who Jesus really is. We, we want to look at all of the, the historical context, the cultural context, the, what the Bible says. We want to find out who Jesus really was. But what they did was really anything but that. What they did was that they went through and looked at his life, and anything that was kind of controversial, they just took out of Scripture. Anything that might have said so, that might have been, you know, in today's world would offend people, they just, they said, yeah, we'll just ignore that. And what they ended up doing was coming up with a Jesus that looks a whole lot like the one that our culture has tried to create. The Jesus of just compassion and love only, you know, the guy that would just hug everybody and sing Kumbaya around the campfire with everybody. Sinclair Ferguson, a, a, a pastor and scholar from Scotland, he said this about that specific group. He said, these scholars were like people looking down a well to find Jesus. But they didn't realize the Jesus that they saw was really just a reflection of themselves from the water at the bottom of the well. Think about that. It's like we're looking for Jesus and what we're seeing is, is ourselves. We've created Jesus in our own image. Instead of us being the image bearer of Jesus, we're trying to be, uh, have Jesus be our image bearer. And it just doesn't work that way. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say this. He says, I think, I think this is what has happened in popular evangelicism. Our Jesus is actually a reflection of ourselves. He says this is the constant danger when we don't simply open the scriptures and listen to their testimony about Jesus. We make Jesus in our own image, usually domesticated. Sadly, much that dominates the Christian media seems to fall foul here. He goes on to say this, and, and this is powerful right here. He says, any Jesus who isn't both Savior and Lord, sacrificial Lamb of God and reigning King, cannot be the Jesus of the Gospels. And any Jesus who does not call us to be radical and sacrificial, and yes, painful discipleship, cannot be the real Jesus. And that gets us to 1 John. 
And 1 John, it's different than the Gospel of John, right? You, you've got, in the Gospels, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You all remember all of those. They're, they're the four Gospels. And in those Gospels, in those uh, books, that's where we find the accounts and the, of the life of Jesus. It's where we find all the details about the life of Jesus. And in John's Gospel, he specifically uses several phrases like walking in the light or abiding in Christ. Um, he, and he does that because the Gospel of John, it was written to really to convert sinners to, to followers of Jesus. He, he writes all of these things basically for the purpose of saying, I, I've, I've written everything down that I, I witnessed. Some things I didn't write down because it's just too much, but I, I've written all of these things down that I witnessed so that you would believe. That's kind of the theme of, of the Gospel of John. I've written all of this down so that you would believe, so that you will follow Jesus. But, but the letter of 1 John, it's a, it's a little different. 1 John is written to kind of check in with those believers to say that, hey, now that you already know all of this stuff, now that you've been told all of this stuff, now that you already believe, how are you doing? How, how's this working out for you? How are you living that out in your life? And 1 John, it answers those questions. It shows their successes and their failures. And think about this. It had been close, by the time 1 John is written, it had been close to 50 years since Jesus had physically walked on earth. I mean, he, he had been crucified, and he'd been raised from the dead, and now he's ascended into heaven, and, and time has passed, and it's been about 50 years now. And so most of the people who were around, because remember, the lifespan in the first century wasn't really that long, most of the people that had been around in, in the first century that saw that, all these eyewitnesses, they've died. They're all dead now, and so John, is, he's the last living disciple. And so he's looking back, and he's remembering the time that he had spent with Jesus and to add on to that, you've got some false teachers who have kind of made their way into the church. And they're coming in and they're saying things like, you know, well, Jesus, he wasn't really a real person. He was just a, he was just a spirit. He was more of just a um, kind of a good feeling that you get. He, he, but he wasn't real. He wasn't a real person. And so John's writing this to say, hey, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait just a minute. I was there. I, I saw him and I touched him. I, I heard him. I was there. I ate with him. I was an eyewitness to all of this. And so John is speaking to this church with, with kind of a pastor's heart, and he's loving on them, and he's encouraging them, and he's trying to help them understand, okay, this is who Jesus really was. And because this is who Jesus really was, now you've got to live your life as a reflection of, of that. John knew Jesus. John had experienced life with Jesus. He had watched him teach and serve and, and perform miracles. And now John is, is, is wanting the believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to have an assurance, which is that, that you can know that you have eternal life. In fact, I think the key verse to this whole letter is, is found at the end of 1 John. is chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know you have eternal life. That, that's kind of the key verse that holds this whole letter together. He, he's writing to give them confidence to say, to say you can know that you have eternal life because of who Jesus really is. But he's also saying that, hey, if you're a believer, that, uh, this is what your life should really look like. If you're, if you're really a believer, your life should be countercultural. Your, your life should be a life that's been changed from the inside out. And so there's several different themes that are found in 1 John, but they all build onto what we're talking about today. That, that question that I posed just a few uh, moments ago, that who is Jesus? And, and actually, let's just take that one step further. Let, let's make it a little bit more personal. Who is Jesus to you? 
Who's Jesus to you? I mean, if you were, if someone were to come into your place of work or to your school or or just to to your home and say, "Hey, who who is Jesus?" How, how would you describe that? How would you describe Jesus to those people? How would you answer that question? If you had to write it down, what would you write to to answer that question? Who is Jesus? In Matthew sixteen fifteen, it's the same question that Jesus asked his disciples when he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" That's the question. And again, it doesn't really matter if you've been a believer for 50 years or, or just a few minutes or if you're skeptical of all of this and you're not really sure about any of it. You're still going to have to answer this question at some point in your life. You're going to have to wrestle with this. You're going to have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus who he really said he was? Did he really rise from the dead? Or is all of this just a fairy tale? Is all of this something that just makes us feel good about ourselves? You've got to settle that in your spirit. You've got to wrestle with that. And and you've got to get to the point where you can stand and and say, I know who Jesus is and I'm confident in my answer. And and again, how you answer that question, it will determine how you live your life. So let's start right at the beginning of 1 John. He's establishing who Jesus is right off the bat. 1 John, verse 1. This is John writing. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. Whom we have heard and we have seen. Again, he's going back to that, hey, I, I was there. I was with him. I heard him. I saw him. He says, we saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. You remember how the gospel of John starts? John, John 1, 1 is, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You, you remember that, right? Well, well, John is going back to that. He's, he's kind of piggybacking off of that and he's saying, this is who Jesus is, that he existed from the beginning. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And John is reminding us that Jesus is the Word of life. He's reminding his audience that, that hey, I was there. I saw the miracles. I, I, I saw it all. And he's just passing on what he has witnessed. But again, I, I think this is, this is where the problem in the world comes up today. It is the picture of Jesus that we're following. The picture that we're, uh, of Jesus that I think often people are following isn't the picture of Jesus that we find in Scripture, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, There's a vast number of portraits in the art galleries of the world, and these images are often so conflicting that they offer very little help in achieving an accurate picture of what Christ looked like during the period of his incarnation, of being in the flesh. The multiplicity of images parallels the widespread confusion about Jesus' identity that exists in the world today. I don't think he's wrong about that. He goes on to say, We need Christ, but the real Christ. A Christ born of empty speculation or created to squeeze into the philosopher's pattern, it simply won't do. A recycled Christ, a Christ of compromise, can redeem no one. A Christ watered down, stripped of power, debased of glory, reduced to a symbol or made impotent by scholarly surgery is not Christ, but actually Antichrist. That should force us to wrestle with this question, that, that what kind of Christ are we following? Are, are we following the Christ of the Bible? Are we following the Jesus of the Bible? Or, or is what we're following kind of this, this picture, this image that's been created by the world that we live in that doesn't reflect the whole truth of Scripture? When we look at the Christ of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, you know, he isn't always popular. In fact, uh, there were a lot of times where they tried to run him out of town, or they did run him out of town. There were often times where they picked up stones to to want to stone him. I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of popular leaders that that's ever happened to. I mean, I know some some leaders that we might like to see it happen to, but but I don't know that I've 
you know, popular leaders that is generally liked by everybody that that's ever happened to. Jesus wasn't always that popular. And, and look, a lot of us, we like to avoid, avoid conflicts, right? And so, so we just kind of put our heads down and we go with whatever everyone else thinks about whatever because we don't want to rock the boat. We, we don't want to seem intolerant or unloving. And, and here's the thing is we're going to find out this whole letter of 1 John, it's all about love. This whole letter is about love, but it's a love that flows out of a proper understanding of who Jesus really is. Ed Stetcher would say it this way. He says, when we shape Jesus in our own image, we end up putting our failures and our sinful brokenness on Jesus in a way that warps his holiness. Instead of seeing the glory of Jesus being a perfect human, the God-man, we tend to cast him as our kind of human. And in the process, we can develop prejudices based on our specific version of Jesus. He goes on to say this, he says, In the midst of our current conversation about what it means to be gospel-centered and Jesus-centered, we must rethink, reconsider, and yes, refocus on who Jesus really is. He is he's not this divine vending machine. He's not who we call on when we, when, when we just need help. He's not a 911 Jesus that we only call on when tragedy strikes. He says we need to reconnect with the real Jesus, the, the same Jesus who went into the temple and who, who threw people out because they were money changers. The Jesus who taught radical truths to women who were not appreciated or acknowledged by with, or within society. The, the Jesus who talked about bringing in this thing called the kingdom of God and not the way of the Jews the, who, who thought that there was going to be this government overthrow of the Romans, but in a subversive way changed people. And then I love his last statement that he makes about this. He says, the more we paint a true picture of Jesus, the more like that Jesus we will become. This is why we've got to wrestle with this. This is why we've got to figure out who who Jesus really is. This is why we've got to nail down this image of Jesus. Because if if you're following a Jesus that has been created in the image of the world, or or just a a picture or a caricature that's been made by people who, who don't even know Jesus... Are you really following Jesus? And the answer to that is, I think, no. Think about this for a moment. Satan. Satan was an angel of light, right? And, and so it looks good. It sounds good. Everything about it seems good. But in reality, it's a counterfeit version of the real thing. So we have to know who the real Jesus is because I think there's a lot of people out here in the world who are who are. Maybe not following, but at least like this counterfeit version of Jesus, this counterfeit version of Christianity that the world is propagating that has also been added to by the church. You know, let's don't just put it all on, put the blame all on the world, all right? The church has been guilty of this, is complicit in this, uh, of propagating a, a counterfeit Christianity, a counterfeit Jesus. So we have to know who the real Jesus is. So let's take a, a couple of minutes real quickly just to look at who he was briefly. And he was this, he was fully divine and fully human. He was fully divine and fully human. No one else has ever lived on this earth like Jesus lived on this earth. Fully God and fully man. The the Gospels, they tell us the story of Jesus. They reveal the details of Jesus starting at his birth and all the way through his life and and up to his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. That's, That's the story of the Gospels, right? And in 1 John 1, 2, we see this. John writes, this one who is life itself, was revealed to us, and we've seen Him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that He is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then He was revealed to us. John's point is simply this, that Jesus is fully God. He's fully divine. The the statements that are found throughout Scripture, Jesus... uh, 
claims to be God. There, there are all sorts of statements. He would say things like, before Abraham, I am. You know, I was, I am. You know, that I am phrase, that's how God told Moses to identify himself when he went to Pharaoh. And Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. And Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. He equated himself with God. In John 10, he says, the Father and I are one. In John 14, 9, Jesus told Philip, if anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, There is no denying, there is no mistaking the claim that Jesus makes about himself. In fact, when he would make these statements, the the religious leaders of the day, they they would pick up stones and they would try and stone him because they thought it was blasphemous that he was claiming to be God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus claimed to be divine, that he was fully God. And this is where I think the tension arises. For a lot of people today, because a lot of people want to say, well, Jesus, you know, he was a really good guy. He was a good teacher. He was a good moral person. He was a community leader. Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from Jesus. But this whole nonsense about him being God, I'm not so sure about that. I I just don't buy into it. And I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. You've heard me reference that book before. I, I think that should be required reading for every Christian. But this is what C.S. Lewis says about this. And just listen to the logic of his argument here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. He goes on to say, he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And he finishes by saying this, he says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Man, that's some powerful stuff there. C.S. Lewis basically says you got three choices when it comes to Jesus. He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. That's our three choices when it comes to who Jesus is. Because a guy walking around claiming to be God is not a good guy if he's not telling the truth. A a guy that says all of these things that Jesus said, if he's not those things, then he's, he's either a liar or a lunatic. But if, if he is who he said he is, if he really is the things that he claimed to be, then don't you think we ought to stop and listen? Don't you think we ought to stop and and learn and investigate a little further? It says right here in 1 John that He was there from the beginning. He is eternal life. He was with the Father. You realize, right, that Jesus is God. He's not just a a miniature created version of God. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. You notice in Genesis 1, when when you read all of creation, it doesn't say, and God created. It says, and we created. Right? It's plural. Jesus was there at creation. He is God. There's never been a time where Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't just a good person. He's not just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And so he's fully God. But he's also fully human. And John here is defending his humanity again because you had these false teachers coming in and saying that, that, that Jesus was just a spirit or kind of a ghost or an imagination or something that just made you feel good about yourself. 
but, but that he wasn't really a real person. And, and John is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We, we ate with him. You ever seen a ghost eat? No, because ghosts don't eat, right? You know, ca- think about all of your Casper, you know, imaginations and, and the movies. Ghosts never eat and they can't be touched, right? You, you touch them and you go right through them. John's saying he's not a ghost. He was real. You could touch him. He ate. He was fully God and he was fully human. And I think this is where the stumbling block comes up for us. John Piper says that many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains in the spiritual realm. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing our particular sins of our particular lives, that's when the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. And as long as Jesus is just kind of out there, you know, think like Star Wars and the Force, as long as he's just kind of out there as the Force, People are okay with him. But when we realize that he's real, that that he really walked, that he really talked, that he really ate, that he really died on a cross, that this isn't just a fairy tale, but these are real historical events that happen, that's when people start to get uneasy. That's when people start to get offended. Because that means that if everything that we find in Scripture now, now we have to do something about it. Now we have to do something with it. We can't ignore it anymore. We can't just put it, push it to the side. If Jesus really is who He claimed to be, then we've got to do something with everything that He said and everything that we find in Scripture. We, we can't just ignore it and live life as if it doesn't exist anymore. It means that our opinions and our beliefs that we've, that we've held on to that don't match up with Scripture, guess what? If you've got an opinion or a belief that isn't, accurate with Scripture, doesn't match up with Scripture, guess who's wrong? Right? It means that we've got we've to re-examine those and ultimately dismiss those. If, if Jesus weren't a real person, if He were just a fictional character, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if He's real, if He's real, it changes everything. And when we come to the conclusion that Jesus really was who He said He was, you know what it does? It unites us. It brings us together. It gives us a common purpose now that we're no longer living for ourselves, but now we're living for Jesus. In, in verse 3 and 4, uh, John says this. He says, We proclaimed you that, to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. John's talking about this common fellowship that that we have with one another that is based on our fellowship with Jesus. He's talking about living in community with each other because we have community with Jesus. Here's what I'm ultimately getting at today. That once we know who Jesus is, then we have to live our lives accordingly. And in verses 6 and 7, we're going to talk about those next week, but but what John basically says is, he says this, he says if we say that we know who Jesus is, but we live life different from that, then we're liars. In other words, if you believe in Jesus as fully God and fully human, that He is Lord of all, that He was crucified as the sacrifice for your sins, and and then He rose from the dead to conquer death once and for all, if you believe that, then act like it. Then, Then live like it. At some point, we got to stop playing games. we got to stop making excuses. we got to quit holding on to excuses. Like We talked about excuses for four weeks, right? we we, we got to move past those. We've got to come to terms, and we've got to answer this question, who is Jesus? And if, you're, and if you answer that, and you think, well, he, he's just a good person. He was just a good person. I can tell you that church might make you feel good about yourself. And I'll always be glad you're here. The church will always be glad that you're here. 
But I can tell you, ultimately, it will make no difference in your life. And it will make no difference in the world that you live in. And you could have just slept in today. But, if your answer is, I believe he's really who he claimed he was. Then we've got to start living like it. And maybe your answer is, you know, hey, I don't know yet. You know what, that's okay, that's a starting point. That's a starting point. And hopefully as we go through 1 John, you'll gain the confidence from what John writes to be able to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that's who He is because that's who He said He was. So who is Jesus to you? How are you going to answer that question? Because how you answer it will determine how you live your life. Let's live like it. Let me pray for us.